0: From India's Largest Newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. On the 13th of November, the Bhagwantman government in Punjab announced a ban on songs promoting gun culture. It also banned the public display of firearms including on social media and ordered a review of arms licenses issued to people in the state. The order came after multiple shootouts were reported in the state in a short period. A few days after the order, singer Tara Kasapuriya and his managers were booked after the release of a song in which he allegedly sang about having a 32-bore gun in his pocket. A fortnight later, 11-year-old in Amritsar was named in NFIR for allegedly posing with a gun in a picture on social media. Except it turned out, the boy was 4 years old when the picture was taken and the gun he posed with was a toy. His name was later dropped from the FIR. Action against the culture of guns in Punjab has been sought for a while. But Mumbai-based journalist, Bhanuj Kapal, who has been writing on music for over a decade, says the Punjab government's decision to target musicians isn't entirely surprising. However, he says the songs are not what's inspiring gun culture in a state that has always glorified weapons.
1: I think it's a failure of sort of imagination and policy on the side of the Punjab government because this is obviously a problem that they've been dealing with in terms of gun violence uh, and gang violence for a long time. And uh, the idea that music, songs or musical artists are the in any way drivers of this violence seems quite fanciful. Uh, but it is the easiest thing to attack it. I believe they've also got a Punjab Sabyachar uh commission, Punjab Culture Commission, which they set up. This is a long-running thing. They've been trying to do this for a while, and it keeps coming back to these like very 20th-century censorship ideas. Uh, the idea that the state should guide culture. So, for example, if the problem is the violence within the Punjabi society, then I think you're giving too much credit to musicians and artists if uh for something like this. And the problem is violence within the Punjabi music industry, which is a problem, as we saw with Sidhu Moosewala's uh, assassination, that is a problem that is solved by you know dealing with the black money and the other world money that is in the Punjabi music industry.
0: But then on the 30th of November, India's Ministry of Information and Broadcasting issued a notification to all private FM radio stations in the country. The ministry told all private FM channels to not play songs that would glorify alcohol, drugs, weapons, gangster or gun culture. A failure to adhere to this norm would result in action, including a possible suspension of permission. Banuj says that notification is perhaps a more ham-handed move than the Punjab government's, but sees it as a larger attempt at censoring artistic liberties. I
1: think this is just the government testing the waters and signaling that they are hardening their stance on free speech and on the sort of content that you can put out. This is not only part of that, but perhaps an easy canary in the coal mine. Because it's hard to get get up and say, I want to defend the rights of people to be misogynistic and wave around guns in their music videos. It's an easy test case to see if people will be okay with this sort of sensation.
0: In today's episode, we're in conversation with Bhanuj Kapal about these new regulations that target musicians. We discuss how much being off radio will affect artists, the long-standing grouse against rap music promoting violence, and how much of an effect these norms will have on the creativity of artists. Bhanuj says these sort of attempts at censorship of music aren't new, but he argues that preventing popular culture from engaging with contentious issues doesn't help.
1: relatively recently, most music that had mass appeal that was big enough to be censored associated with film. So if you, you know, if you've already got the film producers worried about censorship, then they're not going to uh, rock the boat too much. Like, you know, there's always some political leader or some administrator who has this bright idea of he's going to fix society with censorship. So I remember in the early 2000s, those DJ remix videos that were coming out Uh, where they were taking these old Bollywood songs and remixing them. The cantalaga tapes. Yeah, and they had a bunch of fairly raunchy videos. I remember there were a lot of calls. I think there was a government proposal also to sort of uh, ban these. You don't treat these small bits of censorship as really big things, which say artists in the West would do. And so, you know, uh, people think that it's okay to do these sort of things. Look at Sidhu Muzewala's SYL, which is the song and music video that came out after he was killed. Uh, It has Khalistani imagery. Yes, it does sort of name drop and reference a Khalistani terrorist. And I don't agree with that uh, necessarily, but that doesn't mean that you ban it, right? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who validise Nataram Godse, but they don't get banned, right? Their YouTube channels don't get taken off. Uh, and in fact, as someone who grew up in Chandigarh, uh, I'd argue that there's this blanket silence over talking about the 1980s, about Rindanwale, about the Khalistanis, and also about the excesses of the state, which are many. But the point I was trying to make is that if uh, this sort of, sort of ban on content or this sort of silence around these controversial issues only leads to ignorance and also like I think it, it, it has a role to play in the current resurgence of interest in the sort of Brindadwala election because people don't know what really happened and this while the state pretends that it, it, it did nothing wrong, uh, people know they have lived experience, their families have lived experiences and so when you don't tackle controversial issues transparently and openly and you try and suppress them, it just means more conspiracy theories, more uh, sort of people getting radicalized by those ideologies because obviously they don't
0: trust the states. Banuj Kapal had done this audio series called Gully SE Gully Tak, which was about rap in India. And during the course of that series, he spoke with some of India's biggest hip-hop artists. He explains why he doesn't believe musicians or rappers extolling violence end up actually influencing people to engage in violence. He also talks about how rap in India may have been around since the 1990s, but it truly exploded more recently.
1: Honestly, I think the idea of the idea that musicians are role models in a way that a lot of our other public figures aren't is kind of ridiculous, right? They have much less political power, economic power uh, than, say, an Abani or Nadani or, or any sort of political leader. They're just very visible. It's essentially the easy target. It's easier to go after a musician because what they're doing, they're putting their work out there Uh, especially with, say, a lot of rappers and all, the lyrical content, if you take it out of context of the song, right? uh, which is quite often them playing a sort of character. This is a violent, it's a fantasy. Even in the US, for example, you constantly have these cases where people are, uh, where the police and uh, the judicial system is trying to convict rappers based on their lyrics. But the thing is, this is just easy targets, really. Uh, I think... To solve a lot of the issues that uh, these people get scapegoated for, you have to go dig a lot deeper, but you can sell to a voter that, you know, you see people roaming around with guns and they keep listening to this guy. So I'm going to put him in jail or I'm going to take him off the air. So lastly, this comes from that.
0: Let's talk about the most targeted genre, right? Which is clearly rap in this case. Um Rap in its current form is a more recent development in India, right? Because we've had artists like, say, Baba Segal in the nineties. But he wasn't rap in the in, in the truest sense, right? Papa singer, and you had some others
1: as well. You had like uh I don't know how to pronounce it, just or just blase. But like uh, Bla- Yeah, yeah, blase. Yeah, who would, yeah. Yeah, would come, come in on Rehman's soundtrack.
0: The one, back on the mic, we have live in, and in your city, Hyderabad, Are you ready? Here we come, we come in direct,
1: taking it up, it down fully Got it on and I just but uh, what these guys were doing was experimenting with the form, with the sort of vocal delivery, uh, the sort of rhyming. But what they weren't really engaging with was, was the sort of ideological background of this music and the subtext and the cultural context. We don't live in New York or uh, you know Chicago or LA, and we don't get those references. So uh, I can understand that it took a while for people to get, like really get into that. Uh, and the early experiments were largely just taking the form without any of the politics, without any of the other stuff. While rap took a while, hip-hop was spreading because you had uh, late 90s, early 2000s, you had a lot of DJs spinning a lot of hip-hop. In fact, I remember early 2000s, it felt like hip-hop had taken over the clubs entirely. In the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, you had some like in Punjab in particular, but also in Bombay really, you had this first generation of guys trying to rap. But uh, at that point, the sort of independent music scene, so to speak, that existed was very elite. There was no pathway to financial success, right? So it was always going to be a hobby and it was expensive. And uh, they didn't care about rap. These guys were just doing like they were recording on laptop mics and they were sharing songs online. And they were uh, they were still trying to find their voice. And they had very little access to even the sort of resources that an underground college rock band would have had, for example. So a lot of this early stuff doesn't sound great, quite amateurish. Uh, at this point, they were mostly rapping in English. It, it was awkward. And then in the early 2010s, that changed. So a lot of it was the shift in language, but also I think it, it's just a few years of going back and forth and internalizing what you'd learn from the West and then trying to adapt it. So in Punjab, that happened. Again, Punjab led the way. But uh, what happened in Punjab is a small subset of fairly commercially minded people really took it and ran with it. And Punjab had its own music industry, which is independent of Bollywood. There was already a pathway to success. You could get up to a million, two million people without even having to worry about Bollywood at all. So you got like... The success of Honey Singh and Mafia Mundir. And then they became so big just based on that uh, Punjabi audience, which also includes an international diaspora audience, that uh, Bollywood picked them up. Yo, yo, hani <laughs> What happened elsewhere is that pathway wasn't there. So those guys eventually actually got more time to sort of internalize the the ideas and ideals of hip-hop, but also to adapt it. So they started experimenting with different languages. They started experimenting with different sort of things to talk about. So they're they're not trying to be gangsters in the US. They're trying to be street kids in Kurla or street kids in Dharavi. sort of relating the experience there. And in that, they found an authenticity in in terms of their music. And at the same time, they found an audience that really could connect with it because of cheap data, they could finally reach an audience that wasn't the elite audience, right? Nezi was hitting hundreds of thousands of views before anyone in the Bombay gig scene, uh, the Rocket Electronica scene started paying attention to him. And almost nobody in the entire scene had that many views or even close to it. And then you had like Nancy and Divine coming up. And then you had Gully Boy. And now now it's a much, much bigger thing. Uh, And it's a much more diverse thing.
0: In India, um, the accusation that goes against Punjabi singers and Punjabi rappers is that there's a lot more focus on guns over there. And even the way they talk about women is not very, well, I mean, I don't use the word woke, but they're not even very kind. Could you explain if that exists why that's the case?
1: I think there is a certain hyper-visibility of guns in a lot of Punjabi music uh, uh, and Punjabi rap. A lot of other hip-hop also references violence. There are references to like, uh, for example, a lot of Bombay gully rap has references to shooters but that's more about proximity to the sort of people who are involved in organised violence. (laughs) You generally don't have the rapper himself waving around guns at all. It's more about the world that you live in is a world in which either guns or knives or other other form of street violence, uh, physical violence exists. Punjab, though, there is a sort of higher visibility of guns and a, a more sort of obvious glorification rather than just a... A, a sort of documentary approach. But the truth is that Punjab just also has a lot more guns. And Punjab has a lot more invested in the idea of guns and being a gun owner and brandishing your gun a lot. I mean, if you look at like older folk songs from the early 20th century, for example, you have what are called social banditry songs, uh, but which are also about guns and weapons and violence. So you have Sucha Surma, which is an old folk song about her, Jard Decoit, who was also a serial killer. And who ended up, among the people he killed, was his sister-in-law and her lover. And that's a popular song. If you go to YouTube, you'll see a number of contemporary uh, renditions of it. You have Jonah Moore, who was another Jhaad bandit, who was out for revenge against the state after uh, the police killed his sister-in-law while trying to uh, arrest his dacoid brother. So you have all of that. And even closer to more contemporary times, you have like Chumkeela also mentioned guns in his music. Uh, although he in particular was not valorizing them, but his is more of a documentary approach. This is the Punjab that we know. Uh, you have Surinder Shinde in the 90s singing about things like Pujata De Bulama Bakre, which refers to feasting on mutton after thrashing some. So this sort of you know violent hypermasculinity and this sort of misogyny is not new and nor is it sort of uh, you know a special preserve of hip hop. Uh, it, it's 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 a part of punjabi culture it's a problematic part of punjabi culture across the board bhangra also had massive issues with Jat masculinity caste pride casteist sort of and misogynistic messaging and uh, uh threats of violence or depictions of violence why that is is a is a more complicated question uh but it's a question that's answered by uh socioeconomics and politics it's not necessarily answered by the the choices of artists I think the theory that a lot of these state interventions go by is that artists are driving the sort of cultural conversation and the content. But I feel like a lot of times what's happening is they have identified and are filling a gap. There's a set of people who want to see music like this, either because it's aspirational or it represents uh, you know, experiences or fantasies or uh, whatever. But like it, that need exists because of what's happening in the society. It's not the artist creating their need out of nowhere. See, the thing is, uh, as far as I remember, it wasn't just about guns, right? It was also about alcohol. Alcohol,
0: women, drugs.
1: You can say, yes, a lot of Punjabi artists show guns, but uh, this affects a lot of different artists because also, how do you depict the sort of situations in which uh, you feel threatened by gun crime or the existence of gun crime around you? Or the sort of toxic effects of alcohol or the effect that somebody else's alcoholism has had in your life uh, without touching on these subjects, right? It's like the idea is that instead of nuanced give and take conversations about these issues, we would rather just brush them under the cup. Honestly, even the most socially progressive people I know in India love a song which is probably not in a violent or misogynistic way, but a song about sex or getting high, this is something that people do. They they have sex, they get high, they get drunk. All of this is part of the human experience, and you can't just tell an artist not to represent a part of the human experience. Now, you can have individual cases where an artist goes too far. If, For example, if the misogyny is directed at an individual or a named person, or if, for example, you know, like at a community, and if, you know, all of the, the sort of hundreds of different conditions to free speech that do already do exist in the law books, and there are enough sort of ways to tackle that without a blanket ban. Uh, and I, I think the idea of extending this nationally is, I suspect that it's a canary in the coal mine for future censorship, but it could also just be an overzealous bureaucrat who said, "Oh, the High Court has given this uh, notice. Let's let." everyone know and censorship is only a way of showing that you're doing something to fix a problem that you are doing nothing to fix and instead really you're just shooting the messenger
0: but if radio doesn't play a certain genre or a certain set of songs because of their lyrics etc uh, do you see that affecting independent musicians how much does say radio matter to them currently
1: It depends on what you mean uh, by independent musician. For most of the people I would classify as independent musicians, which is people without labels or people with small indie labels uh, without a lot of money. Those guys are not getting played on the radio anymore. They are not writing songs for the radio audience. For them, it doesn't matter. Occasionally, they might get some play on a special indie art somewhere or the other, but I don't think it realistically makes a difference to them. For some artists who are sort of mainstream, uh, and you know, like when you start overlapping with film stuff, if your songs, if, if you're a film soundtrack guy, or even if you're someone who aspires to work on a film soundtrack and be a composer, but your songs can't get on radio. Once you're at that level of scale, I'm sure it's a hit. I'm pretty sure it's not a crippling hit in any way, but you know, it, it complicates things. Uh, but for most independent artists and even for a lot of the Punjabi rap artists that this is supposedly targeting. They built their fan bases online. Their audiences are already online. Uh, Punjabi rappers in particular and Punjabi pop musicians in particular were sort of pioneers in uh, getting building audiences on YouTube and monetizing audiences on YouTube in India. So they are not dependent on radio in that sense. Uh, The person who really gets hit by this is the poor guy who has to now even be more careful curating these... Playlist. I pity the poor people who are now and to have to listen to every song and make sure there's no references
0: there. Uh, have you ever spoken with musicians about this aspect, this accusation of inspiring violence and how do they think of this sort of allegation? I've never
1: directly asked a question about violence because honestly it's a ridiculous question. I grew up listening to a lot of music I grew up listening to a lot of metal a lot of punk and a lot of later on, a lot of rap. I grew up with a steady diet of violence in my media, in my movies, in the video games I play. I haven't gotten into a fight since I was a school kid. <laughs> so it's a, also there's a, this is the sort of thing that has come up over and over again. You look at the uh, People's Music, Parents' Music Resource Center, PMRC, which is this big. Uh, committee in the US uh, to sort of censor music in the 80s. Uh, and all of the data that's come out of these experiments is that it doesn't make a difference. Uh, violence in media that has no direct causal link or even a strong correlation to further violent activity. What might happen is the sort of person who might be in a situation where they might be violent might also be drawn to a certain a sort of music. But beyond that, drawing any correlation further than that is difficult, and yet people keep returning to this. I don't know why. For example, I've spoken to Basha about the misogyny, you know, some of the what people see as casual misogyny in his music, especially his earlier stuff. And you know, this was I'd interviewed him in 2016. I, I think a couple of other universities had announced that they were banning these guys from performing at the college. And, you know, uh, also Honey Singh, for example, uh, had gotten branded as essentially the 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 super villain after the Nilbeya case because of that song coming out. And so I've spoken about that to some of them, and you know, I got a pretty packed response, which which is kind of disingenuous, which is like either I'm only making the music that you want to hear, which might be accurate, but doesn't really absolve you as an artist of personal responsibility or or you get to say like it's a mirror I'm reflecting what which is a easy. Uh, throwaway response. which doesn't say much, but beyond you can't really press them for anything beyond that because their responsibility ends at the sort of music they want to make. And if you think their music is misogynist, you call it that. That's where that ends. You can't then link the actions of what a listener has done. Science doesn't support it. The research doesn't support it. Uh, a lot of our lived experiences don't. Any artist will tell you they're like you know uh, you put out music with a sort of intent behind how it should be received, but you have no control once you put it up. You can't control what meaning someone else takes out of it and what they do with it. And uh, you have no individual responsibility beyond things like hate speech. Like beyond that, it's it's, yes, you can say that you have responsibility and you can criticize people for it. But I think that's about where you can go.
0: And And do you see this effectively? acting as some kind of a censorship on musicians how would you categorize other independent musicians would they also deal with these subjects as much do you think that it exists as much as a topic of conversation within India
1: I mean this is one in a long list of such measures right this in particular is not really I think what's going to cause people, a chilling effect or cause people to uh, hold themselves back. You look at music, uh, you look at the Kabir Pilamanj, uh, for example, uh, artists who've been in jail. Uh, jail, released, then jailed again, in another case, then released and jailed again. Like this whole process and nobody says anything. I'll give you other examples. There's like um, there's there was scalped which is uh Moth and Delhi Sultanate had, re- had released this music video animated music for sort of a song called Scalp Them, and again and Them that eventually had to be taken down not because of a government effort but because there was so much harassment online and there was so much of a threat of something happening there's this Kashmiri rapper Emer uh, who was uh, earlier this year doing a private listening session for his album uh, for an album that was set in Kashmir and it got raided by like a party of armed Cops, a private invite-only event, right? Uh, I mean, this is sort of thing is happening. Artists who are political, artists who have uh, political opinions or stances that go beyond generic anti-establishment. Anybody who goes beyond that knows that the state is watching. If you have a certain reach, if you've got 500 people, nobody cares. But if, if you've got an audience of even a few thousand, you know that the state is watching you know that they're paying attention, and you know uh, through all of these examples of uh, artists who have been censored, attacked, uh, otherwise threatened either by the state or by uh, non-state third-party actors with the tacit, uh, if not support, then uh, you know uh, the state looking the other way. So this in particular, I don't think, this is not a major chilling effect. This is more a signal to the companies the labels that are running it—that you you should be careful. I think any artist who is going beyond the most generic political message already knows that the risk is goes far beyond being banned on radio. And I think any artist who's mainstream enough to really be affected by this ban, barring a handful of exceptions, has been self-censoring and uh, you know, prostrating when the government asks them to bend. For the last few years, if not longer, the music labels are already terrified and scared of touching anything that, say, talks about Kashmir or talks about Hindutva or talks about a certain brand of politics. That is toxic. Those guys have been frozen out of the sort of mainstream music industry. So it won't make a difference. It's just a reminder that who's in charge. And in India, you can file an injunction in Supreme Court, and in 10, 15 years, you might win the case. But that is no guarantee that you won't be attacked, killed or hurt or imprisoned in another case or, you know, essentially targeted in a million other ways while that case is going on. So you have no faith that the rule of law by itself is going to protect you. And when you don't have that, then then anybody with something at stake, with money to lose, with a career to lose, uh, is going to be very hesitant to make waves.
0: Today's episode was produced by Jairad Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at toipodcast at timesinternet.in